I would like to buy three pounds worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a Muslim or to pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb and not a new birth. Give me a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. These words were penned by Wilbur Reese. And such thinking prompts Jesus to issue a demanding call to discipleship in following him. He records it, or it is recorded, I should say, in Luke 14. We're going to look at verses 25 through 27 together and read them and then finish with verse 33. Luke 14:25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then look at verse 33. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Jesus understands that his enterprise of bringing the kingdom to bear on earth will be sabotaged if quality control is not exercised within the church. Can you imagine a hospital that does not exercise quality control? Would you want to be a part of that operation? Can you imagine... A school that does not exercise some degree of quality control. Would you want to attend that school? Can you imagine a police academy that trains people to be law enforcement officers and does not exercise quality control? I was in conversation with a young man who was an executive in a company. As I was thinking about this matter of quality control, and I asked him, what would happen Rob, to your company if it failed to exercise quality control. He said the net effect would be bankruptcy. The church of Jesus Christ today in America teeters on the brink of spiritual bankruptcy. We have watered down the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to draw more people to our places of worship. We have refused to teach Jesus as Lord while trumpeting Jesus as Savior. We have failed to call people to repentance when we have called them to receive the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. We have extolled the benefits of becoming a Christian without explaining the demands of Christian discipleship. Dallas Willard recently gone to be with the Lord, was a great voice for the demands of Christian discipleship throughout his ministry. He said this, The great danger of the church today is that it pitches its message too low. 
If you read the book of Acts, you're well aware of the fact that the gospel was presented in its unveneered way. It was so clear and it was so compelling. And we see the implementation of the gospel as it took root in the hearts and lives of the followers of Jesus. And after all, the word disciple is a word which means a lifelong learner and follower of Jesus Christ. Need I remind you today that the word Christian occurs only a handful of times in the New Testament, three to be exact, whereas the word disciple appears over 250 times in the New Testament. And contrary to popular opinion, the word disciple is not one which is reserved for those who were disciples for sure, but made up the twelve, the apostles. It's a word which is used of all those who have heard the call of Jesus and have responded to Him. And we must understand that the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to really serve Him. As his disciples. Bill Hull says that the church of Jesus today is experiencing a crisis of product. What kind of people are being brought into the kingdom and then sent out by people like us, the church of Jesus Christ? There is a crisis of product for sure. Several centuries ago, there was a man named by Abu Tabor. He was a chieftain of his tribe in Central Asia. There was another potentate who had begun farther east and was taking his army. His goal was to conquer all of Asia. As that king moved from one kingdom to another, all those kingdoms toppled before his Mighty army. And then he would add those whom he had conquered who were willing to go and serve under his leadership as this juggernaut continued to move in a destructive way across the plains of Central Asia. They neared the kingdom of Abu Tabor. This man was a young man, relatively speaking, and his reputation had made its way to the one who was wreaking havoc all over Central Asia. And this man was one who admired excellence in leadership. And therefore, he decided he would send an envoy to Abu Tabor and offer peace so that there would not be the devastation of his kingdom. And part of the peace process was that Abu Tabor would yield fealty to him. The ambassador arrived. He explained the offer which his master had sent him to deliver to Abu Tabor. Tabor listened quietly and intently. When the ambassador had concluded delivering the message, without addressing the ambassador himself, he turned to one of his soldiers to his right and he said, as he took a dagger out of his own scabbard and put it into his hand, He says, plunge this into your chest. And without hesitation, the man did and fell over dead. Then he turned to his left and he told another one of his soldiers, run off this precipice. The camp was situated on a cliff, as it were. And without hesitation, that man ran off 
that cliff to his death. Then he turned finally to the ambassador. And this is what he said to him. Tell your master that I have 500 other men just like these men. And by this time tomorrow, he will be chained eating with my dogs. Well, the ambassador delivered the message. It incensed this potentate who had won victory after victory, never suffering a defeat. The next morning he came and entered into war with Abu Tabor's forces, and Tabor's prophecy was fulfilled. That potentate and his forces were destroyed that day. And that king chained, set at the feet of Abu Tabor, eating with his dogs. It is quality that counts, right? It's not necessarily the number of people in any enterprise, and especially in the church of Jesus. Does it ever fascinate you when you read the story of Gideon in the Bible? You know Gideon, he was a coward. He was down in a wine press when the Lord came to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. He could not conceive of that regarding himself. But you know the story. His faith built, it built, it built. God told him to take on the Midianites. He called for 32,000 men. And the Lord said, You've got too many. The force was reduced to 10,000. He said, You've still got too many. And he got down to just 300 men. And with those 300 men, as he depended upon the Lord, they won a resounding victory over the superior forces of the Midianites. We don't need to fear not having more people. What we need to fear is God and fear that we would put our faith in the numbers of people rather than in the Lord and build people from His point of view without concern of what others will think about our size or lack thereof. That's beside the point. There's another story that is found in the same vicinity of the Bible that the one I just alluded to is found. It's the story of Ruth. You know the story. She went with her husband Elimelech into the area of Moab because her part of the world and his part of the world was suffering a terrible drought, famine. And there, their two sons, Kilion and Malon, had taken wives, Orpah and Ruth. Well, Elimelech died, her sons died, Ruth had heard that things were getting better in the area of Bethlehem, where she was from. So she decided to return home. There was nobody there for her. And her daughters-in-law were still young enough that they could marry and have children. They didn't have any children at the time. And so she told them, I'm going home. And they wanted to go with her. In fact, the Bible says they wept at the thought of being separated from their mother-in-law. They loved her so much. And as they began to ask her, please let us go with you, she tried to dissuade them. And first of all, they went. And after a second attempt to dissuade them, Orpah decided to go back. But Ruth said, I want to go with you. And remember what she said? Entreat me not to leave you or to return from following after you. For where I go, where you go rather, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. And Ruth consented. 
Ruth tried to dissuade her. Jesus, we see in this passage, He's really seeking to dissuade people from following Him. Why? Because He knows quality control is essential in the body of Christ. If we're going to accomplish what God wants accomplished, we need to understand the importance of our insisting upon building into people, helping them to become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not being exclusive, that's not the point. Don't mishear what Jesus is saying, nor what I'm saying. But what we need to be intent upon is not dealing with the frills that many times, and the thrills which many times go along with church life. But let us really focus on building people for the kingdom of God. Now, there is a note of grace in this demanding call of Jesus. Those who only want three dollars worth of God are of all people the most miserable. They cannot cheat, lie, steal with a whole heart. Nor can they pray, worship, witness or give money to the Lord with a whole heart. They are envious, quite frankly, of the thoroughgoing pagan who can have an affair, cheat on his taxes, step on others without a single twinge of guilt. What we want to know today, I do, and I hope you do too, is what is necessary to maintain such quality in your own life as an individual which will translate into that kind of quality in the life of Jesus' church. Well, look at our text. Jesus never leaves us wondering when we ask such questions. He gives us the answers in His Word. Look at verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with Him, and He turned and said to them, Wow, that is a preacher's dream, to have large crowds Our egos are stroked as preachers, if you haven't guessed, when there are lots of people who want to come to the place where we preach or we teach. And Jesus was a man, but no ordinary man. He was a man who was focused on what the Father had given him to do. He had a clear vision of what his kingdom was to be. His kingdom, he says, is not of this world in the book of John. He says, my kingdom is in the midst of you, he says. It's a different sort of kingdom from the kingdoms of the world. So, here is the first answer to the question as to how we can ensure such quality in our own lives and also in the life of Jesus' church. We can ensure such quality by putting Jesus before our families. Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. He cannot be my disciple. This is a strong word, isn't it? Hate. Doesn't Jesus tell us that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? By all means. One of the beauties of having the whole New Testament and four Gospels is we get clarity on difficult passages, statements like Jesus makes here, by looking at similar statements He makes which are recorded by the other Gospel writers. In Matthew ten thirty-seven, this is what Jesus says. If anyone loves father or mother more than me, that person 
cannot be my disciple. If anyone loves son or daughter more than me, that person cannot be my disciple. Now, the Lord wants us to love our families, right? Thank God for families. One of the greatest tools of witness we have is our family. But if your family, if your mother or your father or your wife or your husband or your children or your brothers or your sisters stand in the way of Jesus' having first place, if you make decisions based upon any family member's concern, then you'd better check out the level of your discipleship. Jesus is to be first. Does that mean that people who are in your family suffer because of your commitment to Jesus Christ? And what I mean by that is suffer a lack of opportunity to become all they can be? Absolutely not. I would go so far as to say I cannot be the kind of father the kind of husband, the kind of brother when my parents were alive, the kind of sin, son rather, that I otherwise would be unless Jesus is before my family. I had a conversation yesterday with a young couple who had asked about being married. And as I spoke to them, I said to each one of them, and I don't know either of them very well, I'm getting to know them and will know them more in the coming months prior to their wedding. But I turned to the man and I called his name and I said, you must love Jesus Christ more than this woman who you're about to marry or you will not be the best husband you can be. And I turned to her and I said the same thing to her. You must love Jesus more than you love this man who's going to become your husband if you hope to have the best marriage. But the text is very clear, isn't it? This idea of hating simply means to love less. I must love all others less than Jesus. And those who are close to me, especially because there's this temptation to us to idolize our children or our mates or our parents or our siblings. It's, it's there. We all have experienced some degree of that, I'm sure. In Fox's book of Martyrs, he tells the story of a 26-year-old woman who was widowed. Her name was Perpetua. She was a committed follower of Jesus. She was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. She was brought before the tribunal in Carthage in North Africa under Roman domination, obviously, and was told her if she did not recant her faith in Jesus Christ and offer incense to the Roman gods, she would go to her death in the arena. She would be thrown to the wild animals. She had a little baby, a young child, an infant, a little older than newborn. And she and the baby were being held in a prison cell in anticipation of her demise. Her father, who was aged, came to her with the permission of the jailer. He got down on his knees and he begged her, please, please, give just a pinch of incense to one of the Roman gods. Because I'm alone and I need someone to take care of me. This tugged at her heartstrings because her father was a wonderful father. She loved him dearly. Then the real challenge came for her when the sentence was about to be executed and her baby was in her arms. She reached down and she kissed, so Fox tells, 
kissed the face of the child and handed the baby to her aged father before she went to die. Now, that's an extreme example, isn't it? God forbid that any of us would ever have to make such a decision. But when the moment of truth came, Perpetua gave that kind of allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there anyone in your life whom you are putting before the Lord Jesus? We must put Jesus before our family members or any friend in our life, any boyfriend, any girlfriend. Here's the second answer to the question as to what's necessary to maintain this kind of quality control in the church of Jesus and in our personal lives. We must put Jesus before our plans. Look at verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I don't have to tell you, but the trip to the cross was a one-way trip. No one going to be crucified had other plans. That person's destiny was determined. Josephus, the Jewish historian who was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, he tells that there were only three people in his awareness who had been crucified in Palestine who came off the cross alive and only one of those three finally survived. So, the trip to the cross is a one-way trip. We are told here by Jesus that if we do not carry our own cross and come after Him, we cannot be His disciple. As disciples, we are to let Jesus plan our lives. Jesus says, I know the plans I have for you. He has a specific blueprint which He has for each one of us. There will be a similarity in regard to all of our discipleship, for sure. Jesus gives us three criteria for understanding what disciples look like in the book of John. In John eight thirty one, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. And he who abides in my truth, that person will be my disciple. And she or he will know the truth, and the truth will set him or her free. So we are to hold to the teachings, is the way the NIV interprets, and that's a good interpretation. Hold to the teachings of Jesus. Are we obeying Christ? That's one of the earmarks of a disciple of Jesus. That's part of the plan that Jesus has for each of us, that we obey Him. And then John thirteen thirty four and 35, He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Do we love each other like Jesus loves us? Do we serve one another? Do we encourage one another? Do we pray for one another? Do we prefer one another above ourselves? Do we have this kind of love that causes us to think not only to our own own interest, but also to the interest of others? Do we look out for one another's interests? That is typical of a disciple of Jesus. That's part of the plan of Jesus for you and me. In John 15, 8, Jesus says, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. Are we fruit-bearing believers? Do we show forth the fruit of the Spirit? 
love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Is that true of you? Are you bearing fruit in the form of people coming to know the Lord Jesus as you minister to them, you love them, you care for them? That's another evidence of your discipleship. And also, it is part of God's plan. This is Jesus' plan for you and for me. A disciple lets Christ plan his life. Another way of saying the same thing is, he lets Jesus be his scheduler. Right? In Ephesians 5.15, Paul writes, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. We live in evil times. He goes on to say, understand what the Lord's will is. Don't be fools, he says. Understand what the Lord's will is. Understand the will of the Lord and you'll understand what the plan of God is. It's in His Word. Here's a question that I have been caused to think about in preparation for this message. How do you use your time? Especially your discretionary time. That time that's not taken up with work or family responsibilities. How do you use your discretionary time? Facebook, PlayStation, working out, shopping, Netflix, sporting events. Now there's not necessarily, I can't say exclusively about these things because I'm not on Facebook and I don't PlayStation, whatever that is. I've just heard about it. And obviously I don't do a lot of working out. I have been known to do some shopping every once in a while and watch some sporting events. But how do we use our time, our, our discretionary time? Do you consult the Lord about that? Lord, how would you have me use my extra time? Understanding that really my time is His time. That's what the Word of God says, because I belong to Him. What are your plans? Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. It's all about commitment. Committing to the Lord. Being a disciple of the Lord. And He will guide us and we will be led by the Spirit. Some of you are younger. Most of you probably are younger than I am. I remember when I was a young man, I had a lot of plans. And I thought I was including the Lord in them. I thought maybe I was consulting the Lord. But really, my plans, when I was younger especially, were laced with personal ambition. Even I was conned by my flesh into thinking that some of my plans really, that I thought were for the glory of God, really were more for the glory of me. And as the Lord would have it, as I continued by His grace to walk with Him, He revealed so many of those things to me. A good statement, it's actually a question asked by Jeremiah to Baruch, his disciple, found in Jeremiah 45.5. He asked this question. He says, do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. By implication, for whom should we seek great things? For the Lord Jesus, correct? He's the one that we are to seek great things for, not for ourselves. So, we 
in order to have this quality in our own lives that Jesus calls for, if we're to be His disciples or in the church, we must, first of all, put Him before our family in all other meaningful relationships. We're to put Him before our plans. And thirdly, we're to put Him before our possessions. Look at verse 33. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. This is reminiscent of the conversation which Jesus had with a man we know as the rich young ruler who came to him and said, Good master, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus responded, Go and sell all that you have and give the proceeds to the poor. And the young man was saddened by that suggestion because the Bible says he was very rich. And therefore, he was unable to make the most important commitment anybody can ever make. And that is to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to bring glory and honor to God. He was incapable of doing it. And he turned around and he left. And Jesus was, I believe, saddened by that because he knew what an inferior decision that young man had made. Does Jesus call you and me when we follow him? To sell everything we have like he did the rich young ruler and to give it all to the poor? That's not what he says. When we put this together with other things which he says in the scripture, what it means is we surrender our whole lives to him. And in so doing, we recognize that he is the owner of everything that is entrusted to us. And He wants us to manage that which has been entrusted to us in such a way that it would be something or things which could honor Him in our lives. In the 115th Psalm, the psalmist writes, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name be glory, because of Your loving kindness and because of Your truth. Why then do the nations say, Where now is their God? Our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Their gods are silver and gold. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. Those who make them become like them. All those who trust in them. If we are people who opt to put possessions before Jesus, then we are just as worthless in the end, and in the interim, I might add, as those who made idols out of silver and gold. Those gods, so to speak, were no gods at all. They were just impediments, barriers, to people really knowing the one true God. In the book of Jonah, chapter 2, verse 8, the Bible says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. If we are idolatrous, if we are greedy, if we are people who possess our possessions and in effect let our possessions possess us. We cling to worthless idols and we forfeit the grace which could be ours, found only in following 
Jesus as our Lord in submitting our lives to His plans for our lives. I know you've seen, as I have, the bumper sticker, He who dies with the most toys wins. Wrong. (laughs) Naked I came forth from my mother's womb, the Bible says, and naked I shall return there. Hey, I didn't bring anything in this world, and I'm not taking anything out. You need to understand that. I do too. Therefore, we must lay up treasures where? In heaven, where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break in and steal. We ain't taking anything with us. We can enjoy what God gives to us. First Timothy 6 says, God has given us everything richly to enjoy. It's not wrong to enjoy those things which He has put in our possession. But then he goes on to say, and here I'm paraphrasing a bit, that the way to really enjoy what he's given to you is to share it with other people. That's where the real joy comes. And in so doing, what are you doing? You're laying up treasures in heaven. You're sending it ahead. And nobody's going to steal that from you. Nobody. And as I understand it, it's just rolling over in heaven. Jesus said, as we read earlier from Matthew 16, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus was painting a picture that the first hearers understood very well. It's a picture of scales. And this is what he was saying. If you were to put your soul on one side of the scale and all the riches of the world on the other, the scale would... Always tip in the direction of their soul. Your soul is more important than all the riches in the world. So don't forfeit your soul for a mess of pottage like Esau did when he sold his birthright, gave it away to his brother. It's a waste. When the remains of Charlemagne, the great emperor of the Holy Roman Empire was discovered. There was a tomb. It was more like a mausoleum, actually. And when it was exhumed, and the archaeologists went in, and they found him seated on a beautiful throne. And he was regaled in royal robes and had a crown on his head. His skeleton, of course, was all that was left of him. But in his lap, there was found... A Bible, and it was open, and his bony finger still was on this verse where Jesus says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That was by his own will that he had that done to his body when he died. He understood the treachery associated with living to accumulate wealth and how futile and worthless that. That pursuit is. What possession do you treasure most? Maybe it's your home, a car, your wardrobe, a piece of jewelry, or a lot of jewelry. What is it? We need to understand that the Lord Jesus wants us to understand He's given that to us as a trust, and we are to administer it thusly as disciples 
of Jesus. So, what have we learned today about what's necessary to have quality control in our own lives and in the life of this church? We put Jesus before family. We put Jesus before our personal plans. We put Jesus before our possessions. And I save the toughest one for last. Really, this is the one under which the other three fall. We put Jesus before ourselves. You might have thought that I had neglected when I read verse 26, the last thing that we're to hate. And I was wanting us to look at this in a separate part of the message. Look again at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In the 15th century, this is the thing I love, among other things, about the truth of God's Word. It does not matter whether it's studied in the 15th century or the 21st century, whether it's the 1400s or the 2000s. It's the same, and people are the same. Do you know, wherever we intersect humanity, the need is the same. Why? Because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we were created to be indwelled by the Spirit of God. God wants to live in our lives. And so that's why the Word of God is living and active and sharpening to its sword. It's the Word of the Lord. And it has application. If the world lasts 20 more centuries, somebody will preach this message every day probably of every year. Somewhere in the world. Maybe many times over. And it will have the impact on the hearers that it has upon us today. Meister Eckert, 15th century mystic in Europe, wrote this, There are plenty of Christians to follow the Lord halfway, but not the other half. They'll give up possessions, friends, and honors, but it touches them too closely to disown themselves. To die to yourself. To really realize that... You are not your own. That you have been bought with a price. And to commit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his most notable work, The Cost of Discipleship, which he wrote, by the way, when he was 21 or 22 years of age, it was actually a popularization of his Ph.D. thesis in New Testament at the University of Berlin. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and to die. St. Patrick, we're a little over a month away from St. Pat's Day. And St. Patrick was not just any ordinary Christian. He was a real disciple of Christ. And he devoted his life to the evangelization, making disciples of people who inhabited the Emerald Isle. And he would take people, once they had committed their lives to Jesus, and he would baptize them. And not by sprinkling like the Roman Catholic Church does today. He did it the scriptural way. He took them to a place, usually a river, and baptized them. He took one man there, among others. And this man was the first one to be baptized. And whenever he would baptize, he had a... Beautiful rod, staff really, and it had a symbol of the cross on top, and it was sharp on the bottom because 
he would plunge that into the bed of the river or lake where he was baptizing. So it would be steady there. And he would baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This one individual went into the water with him. And Patrick, with emphasis, jabbed that rod down into the bed of the running river. The man whom he was baptizing flinched a little bit. And then after he had baptized him, bringing him out of the water, he knew, saw that the water was running red with blood. And he said to the man, what happened? He said, when you put the rod in, it pierced my foot. He said, why didn't you say something? He said, because I thought that was part of the baptismal ritual. <laughs> now, we don't do that here. We do baptize people who have given their lives to Christ by immersion. But that man, really, in a sense, he was following Jesus, wasn't he? He said, if that's all I have to do, it's worth it for what he's done for me. And the Lord says to us, through the Apostle Paul's testimony, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the Lord. Thomas Boston lived hundreds of years ago, commenting on this idea, said this, No man can be a true disciple of Christ unless Christ is dearer to him than that which is dearest to him in the world. This is a strong message, isn't it? It sort of wilts me when I read it. But there's grace in this. It's the grace of the Lord. He wants us to experience his grace. I want to finish with a story that's told by Donald Gray Barnhouse, long gone to be with the Lord. He was the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many years, one of the greatest preachers of the gospel in his day in the mid-20th century. He tells a story of a young girl, a teenager. On a hot summer afternoon, she heard the doorbell ring where she lived. She was alone in the house. She went. She answered the door. There was a man nicely dressed who had in his arms a box that appeared to be a box of flowers. And he handed it to her and said, Mrs. So-and-so has sent these to you by me. And the woman who had sent it was this teenage girl's Sunday school teacher. And the girl was surprised and excited at the same time. She didn't know what she would find when she opened the box. She expected to find flowers. So she said, thank you, closed the door, went back to the kitchen area. She was going to get a vase to put the flowers in. And when she opened the box, the flowers were roses, but they were dried up. And she said, I don't understand this. And she said, perhaps, as she reasons, perhaps this man was given this assignment days ago and he forgot. And now he's fulfilling his obligation to his employer and to me. And then that day, in the afternoon, she went in hopes of finding her teacher without being too conspicuous. She knew that her Sunday school teacher sometime would go to the local cafe. This was a rather small town and would have coffee with friends and Lo and behold, she found her, and she came up to her and said, Thank you, calling her name, 
for the flowers you sent to me. And she emphasized the word today. Today. And then the lady said, you're welcome. Several days ago, I was walking in my garden and I saw those beautiful roses. I said, these remind me of, her name was Mary. They remind me of Mary. They're so beautiful and there's such a fragrance about them. And I decided I would take those flowers after having cut them, put them in a vase of water. Then I took them and I put them on my chest of drawers in my bedroom and I enjoyed them for several days until the petals began to fall off. And then I boxed them up and I sent them to you by the man who delivered them, an employee of mine. And the teenager looked at her in puzzlement and said, I don't understand. She said, allow me to explain. Last week, one evening, my husband and I needed to go to pick something up at the grocery. And we arrived there. He said, I'll go and get what we need. You can just stay in the car. And I did that. It was dark. And I noticed a group of girls moving toward my car. And they stopped right in front of it. They didn't see me in the car. And I overheard one of the girls say, one day I'm going to give my life to Jesus totally. But I want to have some fun before. And the girl said, I am that girl. And she says, I know, Mary. I know. And as I looked at those flowers in my garden, I thought of what a beautiful girl you are and what a beautiful life you have before you if you understand that Jesus is the only one who can really bring fulfillment to your life. But you must trust Him with all of your life and not hold back any. And as I saw those flowers and they began to wilt in my bedroom, I thought, there's a resemblance to Mary. She's going to let the prime of her life be wasted and not give her life to the Lord. She's going to give the Lord the leftovers of her life if I don't respond to what I've heard. Well, we don't know what happened to Mary. My guess is she decided, I'm going to give my whole life to the Lord. I'm not going to piddle around with it. Do you know that's what the Lord has for you and me today? That's what He wants for us. No matter where you are in your pilgrimage, He wants all of you, not part of you. Some of you have never trusted Jesus Christ at all. And you're afraid that if you do, He's going to ruin your life. Well, that's a lie of the devil. I mentioned in part the verse in Jeremiah 29:11, so familiar. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. And remember, we saw this just a few Sundays ago. The word welfare is actually shalom. The best which life has to offer. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for shalom and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. I had a lady come up after I shared this message last night and she was in tears. She said, I am just having a difficult time believing I'm forgiven. And as we talked and we talked some more, she said, I I just don't know how to let go of my life and give Jesus all. And so I was sitting right here and 
just witnessed a miracle as she prayed and she asked Jesus to please take her all as she gave her life to the Lord last night. Somebody here today has heard this message. You didn't come here for this, but you did come here for this, to hear. And Jesus wants you to be one who gives your whole life to Him. You forsake yourself in order to follow Him. Would you bow your head and pray? If that's you today, would you say to the Lord, Lord, I surrender my life to You. I'm sorry, Lord, for withholding my life from You. I've been afraid to give You my life fully. But today I want to abandon such fear. And I want to give my life to You today, Lord. I want You to have whatever's left of me. Thank You, Lord. Amen.